1: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest, the Pardon Me edition for March 29th, 2018. I'm Emily Bazelon. John and David are, I don't know where they are off on vacation, but who needs them anyway? Because I'm here with two excellent guests. Jamel Bowie, who is the chief political correspondent for Slate. Hey, Jamel. Hello. Hello. And Jack Hitt, who is a co-host of Uncivil, Gimlet's amazing podcast about the hidden history of the Civil War, which you should all go and download as soon as you finish listening to this show. Hey, Jack. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Emily. Hey, Jamil. Okay, on this week's show, we are going to talk about three topics. The Trump administration has a plan to add a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. A bunch of states and civil rights groups are suing over this idea. Why is this a very big deal? Our second topic, the legal plot surrounding Donald Trump thickens. I think maybe we could have that as like a tagline every week. But this week (laughs) in particular, the New York Times is reporting that Trump's erstwhile lawyer, John Dowd, dangled the possibility of a presidential pardon in front of former campaign manager Paul Manafort. And national security advisor for a nanosecond, um, Michael Flynn, before they uh, were indicted and in Flynn's case, pled guilty. So um, Dowd isn't actually Trump's lawyer anymore. Trump is looking for new lawyers. um, So we can talk about how much we think that we should care about that. And then finally, there is another whole legal subplot going on involving um, Stormy Daniels, her accusations that... Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, paid her hush money, her efforts to get out of her non-disclosure agreement and the entry into the um, story of her lawyer, Michael Avenatti, who is a kind of enjoyable character in this drama, which is packed with too many characters. Okay, and then our third topic is the partisan gerrymandering case that was before the Supreme Court this week. This one is from Maryland. It's the 2nd. Partisan gerrymandering case that the court has heard this term. Why is this issue back in front of the court? And what did we learn from oral argument this week? And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross announced this plan to add a question about citizenship to the census. Ross said he was responding to a request from the Justice Department that the citizenship data would be um, would help the Justice Department better enforce the Voting Rights Act. We can discuss that rationale in a minute. There are a dozen states and civil rights groups who are suing, and they are saying correctly that the Constitution says that the census has to count all persons. And their argument is that by adding a question about citizenship, the Census Bureau would interfere with this mandate to count everybody because the count is going to go down. And the states in particular are claiming harm because this, if there's a diminished count, then that will affect their ability to be able to get government benefits for their citizens. Jamel, Marco Rubio is saying that this is like a big freak out by liberals. Like, what's the big deal? Asking about citizenship. It's just going to be the last question on the form. On your alarm scale, how high does this register?
2: I think this is a pretty, pretty serious thing. Having an inaccurate count of the people in the country is a recipe for misallocating all sorts of resources, and when the people who who are going to be undercounted are uh, are disproportionately Hispanic, uh, African American, uh, low income, um, this has a whole other level of distortionary effect because the other thing that census is used for is reapportionment of congressional representation. And adding a citizenship question makes it far more likely that we're going to get an undercount of of those aforementioned groups, which will end up in reapportionment, shifting power away from urban centers, away from predominantly non-white communities. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's kind of a problem. The idea that this is just like a liberal freakout that this is overblown is, uh, is in fact, belied by the fact that past Census Bureau chiefs, people who are intimately familiar with the census, have also been sounding the alarm and saying, no, we really shouldn't have a sensitive question on the census.
1: Right. I mean, that was actually a bipartisan response by former census directors, right? And they talked about, they called it highly risky to introduce this kind of question so late in the process. Is part of the stack just like a problem of making this change at the last minute?
3: Well, that's, that's one of the arguments that the experts are saying. But the effect that this could have beyond what uh, Jamal was just saying about reapportionment and so on, one estimate is that like California might lose an entire congressional seat. Uh, Texas would gain seven seats in the state house of representatives. So there would be a huge shift in power and allow minority white districts to retain power in minority majority places. The, the other thing is that you know, they've tested this a couple of times in other kinds of census experiments. And I was reading about one where – now understand Latino counts by estimates of, go down every census because of this panic. So it went down 0.8 percent over over being identified by the government and being detained or deported. Uh, Accidentally outing one of your relatives. So there's a lot of people who are legitimately could be counted as citizens who are terrified to answer the question. Right. So we're now putting this question on the census. and And the question is, are you a citizen of the United States? It's that simple. And so they've done these tests and the accounts are amazing. Like, you know, at one point in the middle of the census questioning, the woman just ran out of the house. In another case, when they came back, uh, the family had moved away. So, I mean, it's clear that it's going to cause panic and it will definitely drive down numbers that are already going down by a big amount. The other thing to say here is that like this idea comes from people like Chris Kobach and other really radical sort of alt-right peppy meme loving Republicans. It's been promoted by the the guy who was briefly – Nominated to be the head of the census by Trump was a guy who literally wrote a book uh, arguing against competitive elections. He actually thinks like having no competition, just straight up handing the seat to. Republicans is the way to go. So um, yeah, there's a lot at stake here.
1: So the Census did a study, and they showed that there's already, as you were saying, a groundswell of concern about data sharing and confidentiality, um, citing you know fears of ICE and and what's happening with the Dreamers right now, particularly among Spanish speaking and Arabic speaking um, residents of the United States. That makes me wonder if. One argument here is like already people are scared and nervous. And so, like, so what? So, adding that question, like, we've implicitly made people think so much more about citizenship as a mark of residency or belonging, is actually adding the question. Really, its own harm, or to ask this question in a different way, has the Trump administration effectively already won? because even if this gets tied up in court and the citizenship question doesn't go on the census, there's all this news and fear and alarm about it that is already going to depress the count. Jamel, what do you think about that problem? You know,
2: I think that's I think that's a fair observation. Um, the effect is already is already there. There will be like more most likely a uh, a greater undercount of these communities. Uh, for the twenty twenty census. It's I don't I'm not sure how one how one prevents that. The it's actually interesting. I have um this is extremely anecdotal, but
1: uh, Go for it.
2: I've I have some college classmates who are either formerly undocumented and no longer undocumented or um are engaged in uh, like a lot a lot of that activism and on their Facebook pages they're like very vocally saying, No, we have to be counted for the census. So my hunch, just based on that anecdotal evidence, is that efforts to convince these communities to participate are, are already ongoing. But no, Emily, I think you're right that the damage has sort of already been done. That the Trump administration has been so successful at instilling fear in these communities that when the census comes around, uh, a lot of people are just not going, are just going to not want to participate.
1: In the U.S. Code, it says personal information cannot be used against respondents to the census by any government agency or court. But if you're inclined to be worried about this, you might note that during World War II, the Census Bureau gave the names and addresses of Japanese Americans to the Secret Service. And that was part of the information used to round people up and put them into detention camps. So... You know, one of the other rationales the Trump administration gave is well, we asked a question about citizenship between 1820 and 1950 on the census. What's the big deal bringing it back? Currently, we ask on the American Community Survey, which goes to one in six households, we ask about citizenship there. So I guess, again, I'm just asking, like, is this as big a deal, as big a difference as people say? What's the argument to kind of push back against that history?
3: Well, during Obama's, you know, handling of this, right, in 2010, this issue came up. And again, you know, they tried, the Republicans tried to underfund, uh, you know, uh, the census then. His ICE, his immigration cohort rigorously pursued their jobs throughout the census. And, and Obama literally said, like, don't, don't let that worry you. You know, they went ahead with the count. So on some level, maybe, I mean, we we don't know just how big a freakout it's going to be. But we did go through this in 2010, and ICE was in full force, and people did get counted. Um, maybe not to the, you know, according to sampling, maybe not to the levels that they should have been.
1: Almost, right. I mean, one of the things that struck me about Ross's letter was that, It was very carefully written, right? So here's this rationale that, like, we need citizenship voting age population data in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Um, If you were you know, going to take that argument in good faith, <laughs> you would say like it's true that there's litigation around Latino representation in states like Texas. And one of the questions is how do you make sure that you're not diluting the power of the minority vote? You look at citizenship voting data in order to make sure you have enough people who actually can vote as opposed to just people who are Latino but can't vote. And yet it's just so hard to take a Trump administration concern about the Voting Rights Act at face value. Um, I mean,
3: that is the greatest argument from the Trump administration since they fired James Comey on the grounds that he was unfair to Hillary.
1: Exactly. Right. I mean, I exactly. Know. We have these arguments that like seem so reasonable, and yet, you know, though it struck me reading this letter that. The Trump administration has come a long way from the travel ban. And what I mean by that is like that rollout was so ham-fisted. It was such a mess, such an obvious problem. Now when we see government agencies doing things that seem to have fairly sinister connotations, they do it much more skillfully. So I'm also thinking of the news this week that Scott Pruitt, the head of the EPA, said – you know what? We're only going to look at studies where the data is transparent. We care a lot about transparency. So what does this mean? It means that studies that have been crucial to looking at pollution and chemical exposure often use confidential health data that can't be made public because it's like people's confidential Mm. health data. And so you have this seemingly um, very benevolent rationale about transparency being turned to this other use. Jamel, do you feel like that, you know, the folks who are running these federal agencies are figuring out how to do their jobs? They're just getting more competent?
2: (laughs) I think that's right. Um, I I think we're, we're more than a year into the Trump administration at this point. And it's just simply the case that the political appointees, especially... The sympathetic bureaucrats who may have entered with President Trump's administration have just gotten more savvy and skilled at what they're doing, grown more effective at subverting the missions of their institutions, if that's their goal. It's certainly true at the Department of the Interior. It's true at the Department of Justice. The, the thing, The thing I always think about is this is the stuff that's going to take a generation to reverse.
1: Yes, I totally have been thinking about that because, you know, the 2020 census, those numbers stay with us until
2: 2030.
1: 2030. That's a long time. Even absent the citizenship question, we have a census with budget cuts with no permanent director. And so there's also just like this erosion and denigration of government going on.
3: There's another sort of diabolical feature to this particular question and its long-term impact. Besides sort of lowering congressional seats on the Democratic side and raising them on the Republican side, there's another level in which you can kind of gerrymander uh, districts using the Voting Rights Act. So you can create a Republican majority district by vote and a Democratic majority district by numbers. So if you put in, say, say you have a 52 to 48% Democratic uh, majority district, but if you make 7% of them non-voting non-citizens, then you actually have what looks like a Democratic uh, majority district, but in fact, it's a Republican. So it's, a, it's another tool in the uh, sort of gerrymandering quiver.
1: Totally. And this is related to this um, principle of one person, one vote and how we interpret it. And the Supreme Court settled this question very recently. There's this case called Evanwell versus Abbott brought, by the way, by Edward Bloom, the same guy who is very good at challenging affirmative action in various universities around the country. And this was a, this open question somehow that had never been settled. Does one person, one vote actually mean like one human being Or does it mean someone who's eligible to vote or likely to vote? And the Supreme Court said one human being. But one of the reasons was that the census didn't count citizens. And so the data wasn't as reliable, the data we have from the American Community Survey. And Hmm. so another sort of like lingering question here is whether there's, you know, in line with the um, Chris Kobach agenda of requiring proof of citizenship at voting, you could also go back and open up that precedent about one person, one vote and change how we count people.
2: I really see all of this as part of a, you know, the United States becoming more racially diverse. This growing cohort of um, uh, non-white Americans uh, are more liberal voting. Even if they identify as conservatives, they have less conservative views on a variety of, of issues. And really the only hope for the kind of traditional hardline conservative agenda is sort of making sure that, white Americans and in particular white Americans in rural and exurban places maintain kind of a, a grip on political power. And all of this to me, you know, from, not just gerrymandering of congressional districts, but this attempt to kind of gerrymander the census to the occasional um every couple of years a Republican law Republican lawmaker somewhere float this idea of allocating electoral votes on the basis of congressional districts. There seems to me to be like an actual effort to attempt to gerrymander American democracy writ large to ensure a kind of like extended dominance of a cohort of white Americans in national politics.
1: Yeah, it really struck me, this particular statistic I found, that in the 2020 census for the first time, people are predicting that the white share of the population is going to fall below 60%. And maybe it's anxiety over that shift that's driving a lot of this. So I'm glad you brought that up, Jamal.
3: I mean, I think you know, Democrats are in a very tough place trying to argue that counting citizens is a bad idea. It just doesn't sound good on television. But also, uh, just watching Pelosi and some of the others react to this, it's amazing how incompetent the Democrats are at trying to frame a counter issue. So
1: to, what did she do that you thought was lame? Uh, well,
3: so she said, you know, like, uh, this is going to hurt vulnerable communities. Right. She other said, people's vulnerable uh, exactly. communities. And... She said, you know, Trump is putting politics over the Constitution. That's precisely what they want to hear. Right. He's stirring things up, you know. And the other thing she said was like, you know, he's not listening to the experts. Is there, is there, are there three points that could not possibly fail better than those three? So right?
1: how what, – what if you were Pelosi's message crafter, what would you recommend? Well, a couple
3: of things. One is there was this really radical right police chief in, in Los Angeles named Darrell Gates from years ago. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, totally. So he actually had this special order that he made to all the cops, which is that he, under no circumstances were they to inquire to some, about someone's immigration status. The reason being is that it would cause a spike in crime. That if you drove people away from cooperating with, with law enforcement institutions and other things like that, that basically it would make his job harder. And so there's a whole crime, a, a, you know, a, a law and order argument in favor of making an accurate se- uh, count of the people and not just citizens. Right. Yeah. You could get cops to step up for, to that. There are also uh, a, a huge number of Republicans who oppose this change. Because they're from states where their districts are going to be disadvantaged after the count.
1: Right, Alabama might lose a whole congressional. All right, New seat.
3: Jersey is is uh, the Republicans there are, are vehemently against this. So I mean, there are Republicans that you could put forward so that it looks like an unfair change in the census, right? right. And change the complexion of the way the the whole debate happens, rather than playing in specifically to the Trump voters' worst desires.
1: All right, okay. we can. Uh, we'll we'll offer that advice up for Nancy <laughs> Pelosi. I'm sure she's listening. Yeah, I'm sure. um, before we get to our second topic, I just want to tease our Slate Plus topic today. Jack and Jamel are going to come up with some excellent food and cooking advice for me <laughs> and for you too, Slate Plus. All kinds of things that I don't have time to figure out myself, they are going to figure it out for us. And I also wanted to remind our listeners that the Gabfest has a live show coming up on May 2nd at 7.30 p.m. in St. Louis. Special guest Jason Kander at the Sheldon Concert Hall. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets. We hope to see you there.
0: This episode of the Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, or has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Our second topic. So we have this news story this week about um, John Dowd, Trump's erstwhile lawyer, offering to pardon Manafort and Flynn. It struck me reading this news, which I should say that Dowd denied, that it seems at once totally bizarre and not normal. And yet also I could imagine Trump like going on TV the next day and being like, yeah, we did that, so what? Um and in fact, I found a tweet from July in which Trump said all agree the US president has the complete power to pardon. So, Jack, what do you think the political consequences of the story about this dangle of a pardon offer are gonna be? Will will there be any, I suppose? Well, well
3: I, I think the thing to watch for is whether Dowd lawyers up in the next couple of weeks. Because oh, one argument a good point. right one argument is that he was he quit because he was he was afraid that Mueller was coming after him. Um, I mean, the thing to remember here is that Trump can say all this stuff because he's the president of the United States. He can probably get out of this. But these other people, they're living in our world where the law still matters. Right. And you can't just buffalo your way through these arguments. And, and Dowd may be one of those people. To me, though, I'm not clear. Did he I mean, the rumor is maybe he quit because of this pardon thing or, or
1: that he was forced
4: out. Or there he was forced out. Stories. I mean, yeah,
3: there's not, it's not clear why exactly he quit. But it, it is clear that he's left Trump with essentially a bunch of radio talk show hosts and thuggish blowhards like Michael Cohen to be um, his his legal representation.
1: Yeah. Jamel, do you have any thoughts about the dad story? Do you think – should we care how – whether Trump has like a really top, high-quality lawyer in his corner?
2: So I don't know if we should care. Um, but. I, it is interesting, right, that the president of the United States cannot get good legal representation, um, uh, that <laughs> someone who, True. you know, one would assume that at least some top-shelf firm would want to represent the president, but it turns out that none of them do. The three of us on this call could get better legal representation right now than the president of the United States. And that that I find just remarkable. Speak for
1: yourself. Nobody would ever want to represent me. I'd be a terrible (laughs) client. No, that's not true. I'm very dutiful at such moments. (laughs) Go
2: ahead. I just find that remarkable. Right.
1: Well, there's some calculation. So obviously whoever does this is going to be super famous and gets lots of attention. And yet you have a client who doesn't listen to you. I mean, that seems clear, right? I mean, another possible reason for Dowd leaving was that he was telling Trump not to sit for an interview with Mueller. And Trump is insisting, like, I'm going to do a great job with that, despite his reputation for, um, let's say, inaccurate statements, And bloviation. So there's that problem. And then there's also the idea that Trump could turn on you on any second and you could become the goat in the story. Right. I've
3: heard two theories about this. One one is that in a lot of the prominent law firms, there are a number of women now who are at partner level and they are they're putting the kibosh on this. Yeah. Interesting. The other one is that it possibly may be that at least in legal uh, circles, we've reached this tipping point of Trump's Dignity wraithing, as uh, Josh Marshall calls it, where like people fear that if they take this job, rather than uh, amplify their resume, it's actually going to ruin them. What it did to Gary Cohn. I mean, there's a number of people now who are just wandering the earth, you know, sort of like shells of their former selves, and and it's now Rex cl-
1: Tillerson, right?
3: Tillerson. I mean, and people see these guys and they realize, like, in all likelihood, that will be me if I take this job.
1: So should we be? Worried in either sort of criminal or constitutional terms about Trump's lawyer dangling this pardon offer. Let's assume this story is true. So there is this interesting piece on the blog Just Security this week Mm -hmm. by Alex Whiting, who's a Harvard law professor, and he was making the argument that. A pardon dangle is different and actually more problematic, legally speaking, than an actual open pardon offer. And so Hmm. Whiting's argument is that Dowd dangling an offer before an indictment and guilty plea was done in secret – done to discourage cooperation with an ongoing investigation without any kind of public scrutiny. So you're sort of saying, like, I promise, don't worry, trying to early on cut off whatever cooperation Flynn is giving and Manafort could give and that we should actually analyze that differently, legally speaking, in terms of its constitutionality and the possibility that it could become part of an obstruction charge against Dowd or against Trump, if you could prove, if, if Dowd could then say that Trump encouraged him to do this.
3: Well, I hate to say it, but everything I've heard from legal scholars kind of concurs or, or agrees with Trump that that, that the, the power. pardon power is pretty absolute. And there's really there's no good constitutional law behind uh, any kind of restriction of it. And so, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, giving it or dangling it, I, I think um,
1: doesn't matter. It
3: doesn't matter. At least it's not
2: clear.
1: Jamel, what are your thoughts? Any?
2: I don't have any particular expertise here, although my I think my intuition um, is also that. The pardon power, the president's pardon power, is, is absolute. But this just gets to sort of ha- the way in which Trump and the people around him, right, by being essentially shameless, have completely confounded the constitutional order. <laughs> on 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 some level, this right. whole system only works if the people within it have some sort of shame, which is a signal of some sort of commitments beyond themselves, or even a commitment to their mm-hmm. own sort yep. of like self-interest in not just an extremely narrow venal sense um but because trump doesn't have that that the system is sort of like at a loss for what to do with him intuitively we all kind of think that dangling a pardon in the face of an investigation is wrong like even if it's not like illegal he shouldn't you would imagine that a different president with some awareness of what this might do to his party of what this might do to his agenda, would refrain from taking that step. But because Trump only really thinks about himself in his sort of animalistic, my immediate security sense, those considerations aren't there.
1: Right. I mean, I have to point out, as I always do, or David does at this point in the conversation, that if we had a Congress that was willing to think hard about what it means to have a president corruptly use his power, that you know, impeachment is not narrowly defined legally. But because the Republicans in Congress have so little interest in this, we end up having a conversation about what's strictly unlawful in either criminal or constitutional terms. And you're right, we totally don't know the answer to that. They're unsettled questions. Instead of having the more sort of like reasonable or easier to attain conversation about norms and what's right or wrong, we end up with this conversation about like legality and the precise meaning of corruptly impeding an investigation in the obstruction of justice federal statute.
3: You you get this sense that in certain circles, there are these norms and people in those circles are Abide by them and are alarmed when they're breached. And then there's the president.
1: One more thing that I found really b- just striking about this story was that it leaked. I mean, I, and maybe this is the lawyer in me, but there's all kinds of attorney client privilege that should be mm. relevant here. The lawyers for Manafort and Flynn, who didn't comment in the Times. They shouldn't be the sources for this. Dowd shouldn't be the source. Like, where did this come from? Did it come from Trump or Manafort or Flynn? What other staff members know about this idea? I was really confounded by that question. This where,
3: where would it have come from? I guess, I mean, is there an advantage for Manafort or Flynn's counsel to, to leak this? Does it make it – does it maybe encourage Trump to – to, to pardon them or – I mean is that a strategy?
1: Or someone who's out to get John Dowd. I mean yeah, obviously the right. story is the worst for mm-hmm. Dowd. He's the only one who's directly on the hook. Yeah. Right. I The whole thing, like that part of it sort of bothered me. I but. mean
3: were there other people in the council's office that were trying for – vying for Dowd's job?
1: Well, it doesn't seem that way. No, because the White House council is like over there separately, right? McGann. Don McGann, yeah, right. right, and right. And even Ty Cobb was organizing how much to cooperate with Mueller and what to turn over, right? All right. We have to talk just a little bit about Stormy Daniels, her lawyer, Michael Avenatti. I am really enjoying his entry into the drama. (laughs) He's
0: like just such a particular
1: character and type. Um, So he is being super aggressive. He's having a great time with his moment in the sun. He um, this week filed a motion. He wants to depose Trump to take his sworn testimony. He also wants to take the testimony of Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer. And this is all, of course, about this $130,000 payment made to Daniels days before the 2016 election. Jamel, some commentators seem to feel like Stormy Daniels, this is a sideshow and it has a kind of like Monica Lewinsky possible feeling to it of, you know, far, far from the Russia investigation, all about the president's sexual peccadilloes, like it's sort of beneath us. Is that how you feel about it? Do you think there's something more substantive to to think about here? See, I
2: don't don't think it's beneath us to pay attention to this. There's at least one Actually, quite serious concern that this raises, which is that if the president uh, and his team have been willing to spend large sums of money to cover up an affair, what else has the pre- has Donald Trump in his past spent large amounts of money to cover up? How blackmailable is the president? But beyond that, I mean, just thinking politically. I think it's significant, not just that the president is kind of caught in this scandal, like, unlike everything, else. I mean, really, unlike almost every other scandal, this one has had real staying power. That's in part because of the Daniels legal team has done a great job of keeping the story in the news of uh, releasing tidbits of dripping out information, and kind of taking advantage of uh, the media's sort of um, uh, obsession with uh,
1: appetite. Appetite. I was. I couldn't resist handing you that, giving you that word. Maybe <laughs> it's not the one you want, but it seemed so fitting. Yes.
2: Yes. No. Exactly. As this is ongoing, we learn things like that. This NDA may not actually prevent Daniels from from speaking. If there are other women for whom Trump has done this, that also raises a question about their NDAs and their ability to speak publicly. And I do think this has a real potential of snowballing and also does affect the political situation of the Republican Party, which is then forced to kind of at least addressing this and not defending the president's actions.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. The slow drip, the idea that Stormy Daniels is using a strategy that Trump himself is so masterful at and kind of teasing little bits of information. It's all, of course, reality television.
3: That's how I understand Stormy is is not as a legal question, but as a competitor in the Twitter sphere and in the attention markets. Today, it's about campaign finance reform, or maybe it's about defamation. That's the new angle. Or you threats know, against th- her. Threats against her. While in a parking she's like lot. taking her right. daughter
1: out of her car seat. Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
3: she's dropping one crumb at a time. And she's doing to Trump what Trump is, do- is doing to the country this Twitter, constant Twitter feed, constant turning the story back to her. Understand the 60 Minute Show got better ratings than every episode of the apprentice he knows that and it has to be galling right, right. And, and and so i if you don't follow uh, stormy on twitter you really should she is brilliant at, at at fending off trolls she corrects their spelling when they come at her with you know vulgarity about her uh about what she does for a living she's super sex positive and just comes right back at them vulgarity doesn't shame doesn't affect her Because she is coming to this in this wide open way.
1: in the same way
3: that Trump was, you know, Teflon candidate back when Jeb and Marco and all these guys were trying to hurl insults at him. You know, she is doing to Trump what he what he did to us.
1: Yeah. You know, as as someone who's written about sex work, to me, it is so gratifying to see a porn actress and a businesswoman come forward and be kind of frank and forthright and to me credible and just as you're saying like unembarrassed. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's doing a really good job of representing herself and she reminds me a lot of characters in the Deuce, um, David Simon's show, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, About the porn yeah. industry and mm-hmm. Times Square in the 70s like there's just a kind of openness to her the way she's presenting herself that I think is just like really good.
3: Well, one last thing we'll that see. she's done that the that, sort of take a page from trump's own playbook is that apparently you know he does now have a nickname just like he gives other people nicknames oh really president spanky oh
1: very interesting apparently uh
3: you know even republicans down in this in in dc are that, it,
1: I so. didn't know that. And, you know, and I should have because I've been waiting for the nickname. I feel like that's actually been a problem for people opposing right. Trump, that he has been so much better at nicknames.
3: That's true. I thought Benedict uh. Do- uh, Benedict Donald would catch on. But I think President Spanky has, you know, better Yeah, legs.
1: I feel like that's more catchy. All right. <laughs> we're going to have to wait and see where that goes, too.
0: OK, round two. Name something that's not boring.
4: A laundry? Oh, a book club.
1: Third topic, the lawsuit Benisek versus Lamone came to the Supreme Court this week. This is a lawsuit over the 6th District in Maryland, which was redrawn in 2011 to boost the likelihood that the party would go from having um, six Democrats and two Republicans in Congress to seven Democrats and one Republican. And when he was asked about this redistricting plan in a deposition, the Democratic former governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, said, yes, I did my duty within the meets and bounds of Maryland law to try to help my party. He knew that this redistricting would be more likely to elect a Democrat than a Republican, and that was clearly his intent. So that O'Malley is on the record saying that just like Republican lawmakers in North Carolina have been on the record saying, like, yes, we did political gerrymandering. We thought it was perfectly legal. So sue us. And in fact— that And is it is what, perfectly legal. And it has been perfectly legal. <laughs> exactly. So, Jack, should it continue to be perfectly legal?
3: Well— So that's the question that maybe the Supreme Court is going to take up. But you know, even he has another line in there where he says, uh, "Yeah, I created this district so it would be more likely to elect a Democrat than a Republican." Yes, this was clearly my intent.
1: Right. So we're no make no mistake about make no mistake about it.
3: He is saying what the Supreme Court said, which is that which is you know, districting is purely a political uh, act, a political phenomenon, and should be you know entirely handed off to. The legislatures, right? He's also, by the way, in favor of reforming how we gerrymander. But he's out of the closet saying, "Yes, I do it," and um, which puts him a little bit ahead of some of the other governors pretending like they're making a fair, you know, map. By the way, just to, just to give you a sense of just how gerrymandered some of our states are, I just looked up, like, so Pennsylvania, which normally is a battleground state in the presidential elections, meaning it's roughly fifty fifty, is. 13 Republicans out of 18 seats. North Carolina is the same. It's 10 out of 13 seats a Republican in a battleground state. So, I mean, it has huge effect, this this case. But the question is, what can the Supreme Court do to change the partisan uh, gerrymandering that goes on? Because it seems like 50 years ago, maybe, it was harder to gerrymander because there just wasn't good data. But the problem is now is that you can really fine-tune the data so that you can actually move one house after another with these great computer programs and you can actually gerrymander every district to a fairly well i mean you can actually get precisely the exact vote it's no longer the voters selecting the representatives. It's the representatives selecting their own voters.
1: Right. And the answer to your question, what can the Supreme Court do, is the judges can use those same tools to analyze how much partisanship went into the gerrymandering, mm-hmm. how much this redistricting is based on party preference as opposed to the traditional principles that some states put into law about you know how compact is the district? Does it respect existing county and city lines? Are the, line, are the districts drawn in a manner that's contiguous? Um, but is that
3: something that the Supreme Court can even solve I mean can you can you decide how much partisanship goes into a gerrymandering
1: Well that was like the I would say one of very few interesting moments in oral argument this week was this This question. So, in we have a long tradition of addressing racial gerrymandering, right? But as I think Chief Justice Roberts pointed out, we don't say, like, okay, a certain amount of racial discrimination in drawing districts is okay. But with political gerrymandering, the courts are likely to say that as long as the districting in many states remains in the hands of the legislatures. And so I think the hope, if you want the courts to step in here, is that they're going to start by saying, well, really extreme efforts at gerrymandering are unconstitutional. And then you have sort of two questions. One is this question of intent, which O'Malley was so nice to put on the record. But presumably, if the courts start treating this in a more suspect fashion, future politicians are not going to say stuff like O'Malley said. And then you just have like the various measures of partisan asymmetry that different political scientists have come up with to look at. And I mean, to me, it seems like you could wrestle through that. There could be a whole bunch of lower court rulings and efforts to figure out which of these tests are more useful. you put together some composite of the test. And that all seems like within the realm of the courts if they choose to do it. Jamel, what do you think about this from um, a kind of political as well as legal point of view, because, you know, one of the arguments against worrying too much about partisan gerrymandering is, well, you know what, Democrats and Republicans have sorted themselves anyway into cities and rural districts. And yes, Republicans have a geographic advantage, but that's not something that courts should worry about. That's something that, you know, the political system should address on its own or not address.
2: It strikes me as an argument that just doesn't take history into account. The best example of this is if you go to like the Midwest, right? Right. And you get a map, population map, uh, population bipartisanship, and you looked at it and you're like, oh, look, all the Democrats concentrated in Cleveland and they're concentrated in Cincinnati and they're in, there, and they're in Chicago and Milwaukee and so on and so forth. Sure, you could say this just reflects kind of the natural geographic distribution of partisan identities. But if you overlay that map over a map of population by race, what you'd see is that all those Democratic concentrations are largely just black people. The reasons why there are a bunch of black people concentrated in a bunch of in, into particular census tracts in uh, particular cities has everything to do with discrimination and racial violence and so on and so forth. For me, at least, that, that raises a really important question, which is, like, do we want our system for districting to basically reinforce racial inequality? I understand that's probably not something that the court is terribly concerned with, but as as politics, as something to discuss in like public life, I say that no, that we don't want that, and that we should be looking for ways to make sure that it doesn't. The narrowness of conversations over gerrymandering, I think, frustrates me, because – what we're, de- yeah. what we're dealing with are broad questions about the kind of democracy we want to have. Uh, for my part, it is mm-hmm. not great that if you happen to live in a city, um, if you happen to live in a segregated neighborhood, your vote essentially uh, begins to mean very little in the scheme of things.
3: Can I just say that you know there there is another solution, or at least one kicking around, which is that voters themselves, even ones in districts that they like are repelled by the idea that they can't have – they don't get a choice. I, I got to give a shout out to Republican Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland who actually filed an amicus brief against himself and his state in favor of a nonpartisan commission being created to draw the maps. And so that's one thing that's happening in some of the states is that the voters are demanding that the redistricting be taken away from the legislature – and given to a nonpartisan committee. And I don't know if that solves the problem. But one thing it will do is that it will make those sort of like unsightly the – ver- the, gerry- the salamander portion of the gerrymandering metaphor uh, less likely. So if you look at like Pennsylvania, um, a, bunch of, a lot of these districts there around say Pittsburgh are these big rural swaths taking a small bite out of Pittsburgh to dilute its urban power. It looks ridiculous if you just look at the current map. And if you look at the map that the court drew, the the Pennsylvania uh, Supreme Court, Court. Um, the maps that they drew, it's largely just like this clump here and this clump there. It it, it looks right. The other one doesn't look right. And there's a visual component to this that I think uh, would be harder to pull off if you had a bipartisan committee saying, like, come on. Bob, look at look at this, what you've drawn here. You know, it's ridiculous. Right? Yeah.
1: I mean, the nonpartisan commissions in some states like California have been successful um, when you, measured in terms of how many competitive races there are, which is a pretty good way of thinking right. about this. And then you can also think about, you know, fairness, sort of edging toward proportional representation. You know, so one argument against the Supreme Court finding a way for courts to address partisan gerrymandering is like, well, states should all have nonpartisan commissions, and if the courts can't remedy this problem, that will push more states in that direction. I don't know how that strikes you, Jamil.
2: I'm I'm actually fine with that. I, I if you would have asked me this five years ago or eight years ago, my inclination would have been to say that, yeah, this is this is a fundamentally political enterprise and that it should remain a political enterprise. But as the technology has grown more sophisticated, I think that that in itself is a very important change that, for me, means that maybe we should take this out of the hands of politicians, or at least take this out of the hands of partisan entities and put it into the hands of, I think, a still accountable institution, something that's still accountable to voters, but something that isn't directly concerned with partisan concerns. One thing I'd also want to add to this conversation is there seems to be inadequate representation in general. There are 320 plus million people in the country, but we have 435 representatives in the House. In the house. And I think mm. that sort of ratio makes these conversations over gerrymandering and over redistricting even more fraught. There's just this limited pool of potential representation. There are a variety of schemes that would say uh, increase its size by you know, 50 seats or 60 seats or 70 seats, and those would be largely distributed pretty evenly across the country.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, and that's a nonpartisan, obviously, or could right.
2: be. Right, I mean, yeah, it, it, it would be, it's a kind of situation where California would get like, you know, 13 additional seats, but Texas would get nine, and and Georgia would get three, and it would all kind of balance, they'd all balance each other out, taken nationally.
1: Um, I have one more observation I want to make about the Supreme Court. So one of the questions Why did the court take this Maryland case since it already had a gerrymandering case from Wisconsin? And when the court took the case, my assumption was like, well, if they're going to find that there's no way for courts to do anything here, you don't need a second case. So it seemed like maybe the idea was to have a case where a Democratic gerrymander was being challenged and that would provide some political cover for addressing this problem. But I had another (laughs) Thought about this after oral argument. So the the key vote um, on the court is Justice Kennedy on this case, presumably Justice Breyer who seems in favor of finding some kind of role for courts in policing uh, partisan gerrymandering, he floated a couple times in argument the idea of let's kick this to the calendar for next year. Let's hear Wisconsin and Maryland and the North Carolina case and think about all of them together and what kinds of remedies we could have that would address the different kinds of gerrymandering, the different kinds of proof we have in these cases – And first, I was like rolling my eyes at this idea. I mean, really? Like we need to do this all over again? And then I thought, huh, if they have to do it over again, that would be reason for Justice Kennedy to stay on the Supreme Court next year. There have been rumors, (laughs) as there have been for the last few years, that he is about to retire in June. This is a big deal issue, one that he has written about in the past and seems to care about a lot. And I wonder if Justice Breyer has a sort of alternative motivation here.
3: Wow, that's some serious triple bank. Shot there. That's really. <laughs> <nice>. <laughs>
1: I have zero pr- evidence for this. I just like wanted to throw it out there as a possibility. Gabfest conspiracy theories. Exactly. All right.
3: <laughs> uh, the, the only th- that thing about you. We mentioned Kennedy. Uh, as, as I understand it, his argument is that an uh, excessively partisan. Gerrymandering, uh, you know, disfavors different people's First Amendment rights, right? Yes, to, to, to express your political opinion, association, and if, yes, right? Exactly. And so, if you if you marginalize a whole group based on their political association, you violated their politi- their First Amendment rights. Yes, which and is th- a really cool way to to think about it.
1: Yes, and that is actually the main argument mm-hmm. of the challengers in the Maryland case. So that was another possible reason why they added this case to the docket. You're absolutely right. Jamel, when you are further recovering from your cold over the weekend and ready to drink, I don't know what, maybe bourbon? Bourbon seems like a good thing to drink when you're recovering from a cold. (laughs) What will you be chattering about?
2: Um, I don't, I don't, it's bad for your, alcohol is bad for your throat when you're recovering from a cold. Um, What will I be chattering about? So I have recently uh, been on this um, Michael Mann kick, director Michael Mann. Mm. And so I've just been cool. watching uh, a bunch of Michael Mann films. And the one thing I wanted to, one film I wanted to recommend uh, is 2004's Collateral, which I feel like is like an expensive movie that has two big stars, Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise, but is basically like managed from the cultural radar. It is this, I'd say, strange, like anti-action movie action movie. Uh, you can imagine the pitch we want you to make you know, a thriller involving one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. But what it turns out to be is this, like, very cerebral, very tense film for the first hour and a half that in its conclusion becomes a kind of like Michael Mann does his take on a Jason Voorhees movie with Tom Cruise playing the monster at the end. It's very strange and very interesting. I would highly recommend it. I also recommend Mann's follow-up to Collateral, which was his 2006 uh, Miami Vice film it's this extremely strange uh, uh, kind of like <laughs> deconstructed action film where the action is sort of incidental to the entire narrative and everything is about atmosphere and feel and mood and it also stars Jamie Foxx and then, and then Colin Farrell is the, is the white guy in this case highly recommend them if you're looking for just sort of quasi-experimental mainstream movies to check out which is what I do when I'm sick
1: Jack, what are you going to be chattering about over a drink this weekend?
2: Well, what I have been chattering about is this writer,
3: television producer, uh, Anthony Horowitz. I read a book by him. Uh, By the way, let me just back up and say, like, you know, occasionally I will run into something that I really like. Like, for instance, when I saw Mark Rylance in Cromwell, I had read uh, Hilary Mantel's books and loved that show. And then I found myself just basically renting every Mark Rylance movie. So. Lately, that's just how I've been doing stuff. So I read Magpie Murders, which is this – sounds like a really dopey book because it's a book about a a book editor editing a mystery novel and then the novelist in the book gets killed. It sounds super hokey. Uh, No, it sounds super hokey. I read it too. It's
2: really enjoyable. It's really good.
3: Yeah, and and I I thought he really outsmarted me where I was expecting the narrative to go and where I thought like maybe this is going to be a little too clunky. Uh, when he marries the, pres- the the fictional world with the non-fictional world. And it, 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 he really pulls it off. It was really entertaining all the way to the end. And then I found myself a while back slipping into a, a British television series called Foil's War, which if you haven't seen, is fantastic. It's about a detective trying to you know hold law and order together during the middle of uh, World War II and right afterwards. Turns out every one of those episodes was written by Anthony Horowitz. And then I just picked up uh, – my wife and I are uh, – Sherlock Holmes freaks, and we're reading uh, together uh, right now a book called Moriarty. Turns out that that's also written by Anthony Horowitz, and I really just kind of like, oh, women is that the same guy?
1: All and it's all the Anthony same Horowitz. guy. Yeah, it's not like five people. Named so this is Anthony an accidental
3: Horowitz. sort of Mark Rylance thing where I'm I'm suddenly like up to my nose in Anthony Horowitz. But I will say that you know for this kind of middle brow kind of mystery plotting, he 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 is better than average. I mean, much better. Like with the with the Sherlock Holmes book. There's certain expectations you have when you're reading a Sherlock Holmes book. Like if Sherlock Holmes is not in the story, then he's in disguise somewhere in the story, right? And, and he's, already, he's already messed with me on that one. Throughout the book, he knows what your sort of narrative expectations are and is fooling with those while you're reading or watching the show. So anyway, recommend him.
1: Cool. All right. Well, those were both much more fun chatters than mine. I'm going to play my usual legal nerd role. (laughs) I am really interested in a petition before the Supreme Court by Brendan Dassey. So Brendan Dassey, you may remember, is the teenager in the documentary Making a Murderer. And if you saw that documentary or just catch this bit online, his interrogation is this completely terrifying moment in which he's this – kid who doesn't totally understand what's going on and the police lead him to implicate himself in this like murder and it seems apparent that he's falsely confessing and yet he was convicted um, in part based on this videotaped deposition. So his petition to the Supreme Court would rectify that injustice. I mean, to me, watching this videotape, it just seems so apparent that something some travesty has occurred that I can't believe the lower courts didn't figure out a way to overturn the conviction, but they didn't. And more broadly, his lawyers, or at least like the various friend of the court briefs, are arguing that what the Supreme Court should really be doing is setting a standard for how juveniles can be interrogated, one that recognizes the same science about adolescent brain development that has led Supreme Court justices, in particular Justice Kennedy, to worry about death sentences and life without parole sentences for juveniles. So I'll be really interested to see if the Supreme Court takes this case. Case and also in lawsuit watching land, uh, Maryland and D.C. got through the very first round of the emoluments clause suit against Trump. So this is the suit that says that because Trump owns a stake in you know various businesses, in particular the Trump Hotel and the U.S. Postal Office Building. I think that's right, that Maryland and D.C. have had businesses that have been harmed by this competition and that because the president isn't supposed to be able to accept gifts and emoluments, that this should be illegal. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of depositions and evidence gathering uh, discovery the judge allows in that case. So far, it's alive and well.
3: Can somebody create one of those charts where we have all the sort of zones of lawsuits that are going after the president because you've got emoluments, you've got Stormy is now doing this sort of, uh, you know, defamation thing. But that was also defamation was also Jessica Drake, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, summer. Oh, no. summer. Yeah, summer. Drake was uh, was uh, harassment. Right, right, and then you've got Schneiderman, the AG in New York, going after some of these real estate things, and then you've got you know Mueller, of course, going after whatever money laundering, collusion, something, obstruction. Uh, It just seems like pretty much every zone of the presidency of, 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 of legal pursuit. Somehow has a lawsuit tied to Donald Trump.
1: And for all of this, we can thank, of course, Paula Jones, who right. when she the door. sued Bill Clinton, the Supreme Court said, no, it is not too distracting to force the president to be the um, target of a civil lawsuit while he's in office.
3: And you saw that Stormy has is now insisting on a deposition. Yes. The best reality show <laughs>
1: ever. ever. All right, that's our show for this week. Our researcher is Izzy Rode. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Our show page is slate.com gabfest, where you'll find lots of links to things we talked about this week. Our Facebook page, facebook.com gabfest. And check at SlateGabFest, our Twitter feed, for updates on all kinds of fun things. Our email address is slate.com. And you can search for Slate Political Gab Fest in the Apple Podcast Store. And leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you're a podcast listener, you know how important that is. For Jamel Bowie and Jack Hitt, I'm Emily Bazlon. Talk to you next week. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
4: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce
3: you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C.,